Would you pray with me one more time as we approach the Lord in his word? Father, what a good gift it is that you have given us a firm foundation for our hope. That we do not hope in vain. We do not hope as those who would wishfully think that this world were different than it was. But that we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul the promises of your word. Your word which proves true. Your word which always accomplishes its purposes. Your word by which you created the whole universe and everything in it. Your word by which you made precious and very great promises. By which you accomplished those promises. And so Father I pray that as we go to your word this morning. As we hear the words of your son Jesus. Would you show us more of Christ? Would you make us more like him? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring the comfort of your gospel? Would you help us to know you? We pray that you'd meet every person here with what is needful this morning from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Our text this morning is Matthew 7. Matthew 7, we're going to be in verses 13 to 29. As you turn there, imagine with me for a moment if this stage was on fire. A, I'd be able to see a little better, so that'd be helpful. But I'm not talking like a little, like like tiny little smoking ember in the in the over by the guitar case, but I'm talking about like a raging inferno that's starting to melt my shoes. Imagine that this stage is on fire and the smoke is starting to billow out and you're starting to cough. What should I do if that were the case? What would be the best approach? I think our brother Thad, being a safety-minded individual, would say we we ought to flee. We ought to get out of here. And I think that'd be a good call. Right? The normal response, if there was a fire that was out of control, would be get up, get out, run away. But imagine instead of doing that, I, I maybe said, hey, you know, we ought to probably think about getting out of here. But I said, but, but don't worry, because, because Ryan is a firefighter, so I'm sure he's got a handle on it. And, and we have sprinklers that are going to come and trickle down and going and to take care of that fire. And we have fire extinguishers, and I think we can probably handle it. It's okay, guys. And you just all kind of sat in your seats and watched me run around like crazy trying to put out a fire with maybe Ryan's help. There would be something wrong with that approach, right? It would dull the impact and the urgency of the fact that the stage is on fire. We ought not to respond that way to an emergency. And I think we can sometimes be tempted to respond that way when we see emergencies in the scripture. Jesus this morning is giving a very, very strong warning to the listeners of his sermon. And the temptation for us, because we have a whole Bible theology, is to incorporate into this strong, stern warning some other things. What Jesus says this morning, we're going to be talking about obedience. And we can be tempted when we talk about obedience to Christ. And the fact that obedience is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven... We can be tempted to qualify that with all kinds of things that we know to be true. We know salvation is by faith through grace. We know that there is nothing that we can do with our works to merit entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so we're tempted to bring all of those other things in to a conversation about what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7. But if we do... We will dull and blunt the impact of his words. And I think that is dangerous. Because I think we will fail then to take seriously the warnings that he gives us. So I want us this morning to hear Jesus' words here rightly. In order to hear them rightly, we must remember, yes, salvation is by faith through grace. There is no works that you can do to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. 
Entrance into the kingdom is dependent on God's grace, not your works. And yet, we must not blunt the words of Jesus. We want to hear these warnings. And so, as we go through this text, we're going to think about it with the whole context of the Bible in mind. But we're going to focus especially on the words he says, and we're going to try to hear them well. I hope that the results of that, I think what Jesus intends in saying these things, and I think what we ought to receive this morning is deep conviction. Deep conviction over these warnings because they are for everybody. And then I hope that after experiencing deep conviction, we can bring in deep gospel comfort. Because that's where true comfort comes, is experiencing the conviction of God's word because we are sinners. And then experiencing the comfort of the gospel for us. And both of those together leading to grace-powered obedience to Jesus' words. That's what we're aiming at this morning, is grace-powered obedience to Jesus' words. We're going to follow him through his end of his sermon as he gives a main exhortation. We'll see that first, and then we'll see three dangers related to what he calls us to do. Three dangers related to what he calls us to do. So, in light of that, let's read the text. And then let's examine these one by one. Matthew 7, verses 13 to 29. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen, friends. You can probably see the pattern that Jesus is using all the way through of these two ways. These two, either either two paths or two claims to discipleship or two trees or two houses. He begins with this series of two in verses 13 and 14. And this is where we find his main exhortation. Enter by the narrow gate. That's all Jesus is saying in this whole section, really. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter, come into by the narrow gate. Enter what? He's been talking all along about the kingdom. Enter the kingdom by the narrow gate. Enter what he says leads to life. It's an invitation to enter the kingdom, an invitation to enter life. It's a call to action. Jesus is concluding his sermon, and he's doing like good, uh, good public speakers tend to do, which is call to some kind of response, some kind of action. This is not mere information that Jesus has been giving as he's given this new call for a better righteousness. And as he's talked about how we ought to live in the kingdom of heaven 
He is calling for a decision. He's making a demand. Two paths, or these two ways of describing the decision to be made, are common Old Testament ways of thinking, common Jewish ways of thinking. We find it all over the Proverbs, right? As you read Proverbs, you'll see a path of foolishness and a path of wisdom. Often the path of foolishness is talked about as leading to destruction, the path of wisdom as leading to life. We see this in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 talks about two different ways, the way of sinners and the way of the righteous. And all through Psalms, the way of sinners and the way of the righteous is contrasted. We even see this in books like Joshua, where Joshua exhorts Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, right? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All of this call for response to what's essentially a fork in the road. There are two ways to go. There's not a plurality of ways. Choose this day which way you will pursue Jesus. There's enter by the narrow gate. Or there's take the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. Jesus distinguishes the two ways, not by popular opinion. Notice, where do the many go? Where do the masses go? It's through the wide gate, down the easy way. Many go that way. Few, Jesus says in verse 14, few find the narrow way. It's not by popular opinion or not by appearance of the path itself, right? If we were looking at these two options of life, one would look very comfortable. One would look like it had everything we could ever want. And one will look really hard. One will look counterintuitive to what we would normally feel inclined to choose, maybe even. One is narrow one is, and hard, and one is easy and wide. The only way to distinguish which path we ought to take is by where the path leads, the end of the path, right? That's what Jesus is trying to call us to consider. How we respond to this sermon, how we respond to what he is saying here, will either lead to destruction, death, judgment, or it will lead to life, life in his kingdom. The only distinction is the end of the path. And so Jesus is calling us in light of that, choose the path to life. Deuteronomy 30, Moses does something similar for Israel. He's been talking all along about how Israel ought to respond to Yahweh, especially as they go into the promised land. And he says at the end of Deuteronomy 30, look, I've set before you today life and death. Choose life. It seems like something that shouldn't even really have to be said, right? Like, obviously, we want to choose life. But Moses says it. And Jesus here now, as the new Moses, talking to the new gathered people of God that he is creating, says the same thing. I've set before you today life and death. Choose life. Choose this narrow path that I have set before you. And he'll elaborate more on what this narrow path is. Namely, hearing and doing his words. The call to enter by the narrow gate is a call to go through the gate that Jesus himself in John is revealed to be, right? Jesus himself is the gate to the sheep. The thief climbs over the wall. All who enter through the gate are the ones that are part of his flock. Jesus himself reveals himself in John 14 as the way. So not only is he calling to a particular way of life, but he's saying, I am the way. I am the one who leads to life. This call that Jesus gives, this exhortation to enter the path to life, is a call to follow Jesus. It's the same thing as him saying, follow me. Follow me, hear my words, and do them. As we'll see in a little bit. The main point that Jesus is saying in all of this is that we ought to follow him and enter life. And in order to enter life, we must hear and do his words. To enter life, we must hear and do the words of Jesus. And he wants us to know that there are going to be dangers and barriers because this way is hard, because this way is narrow, because few find it. 
We can expect that there are going to be barriers to walking this way. And that's what he spends the bulk of his time on as he gives these different analogies. There's going to be three dangers we want to talk about. The first is found in verses 15 to 20. The first danger is following the wrong people. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that Jesus, after calling his people to follow him on a particular way, the first warning he gives them, the first danger he mentions is the danger of false prophets. Why would that be? False prophets feels like less of a danger in our day, maybe. I think Jesus starts here because, first of all, it was a present danger to his Jewish listeners. As he was interacting with the common people of Israel, he was being ardently opposed by the leaders, those who would claim to be prophets, those who would claim to be speaking on behalf of God. The Pharisees and Sadducees and other Jewish leaders were opposing Jesus, arguing things like he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. He himself is a drunkard. His disciples are foolish. And so Jesus wanted to warn of this danger, but he knew that it wasn't going to remain just a danger for first century Jews. The danger intensified in the early church. This is why Paul in Acts 20, when he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, what does he warn them of? He warns them of the reality that fierce wolves will arise within their ranks from their own people and say twisted things and lead others astray. All throughout the pastoral letters, Paul is warning about false teachers, which is another way of thinking about false prophets. Jesus wasn't just talking about people who would say something is going to happen and it didn't happen. He's talking about those who would claim to speak on behalf of God and contradict Jesus himself, his own words. It's a danger to Jewish listeners. It's a danger in the early church. Why was it so dangerous? What was the danger posed by these false prophets or false leaders? The danger was, first of all, that they would appear to be worth following. Notice, he says, in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They appear to be worth following. They appear to be someone to emulate. They appear to be a true disciple. Just think about Judas. Jesus knew all along what was in Judas's heart. But the other 11 were taken in pretty heavily. They look worth following. That's why Paul gives that stern warning to the Ephesian elders, because from within and among their own leaders will arise people not worth following. They look worth following, but they ultimately lead away from the path to life. They even devour life, right? Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. They will eat the sheep. They will hurt God's people. They pose a tremendous danger, and so Jesus tells us how we ought to recognize them. What does he say? You will know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus, when he says we will recognize false prophets by their fruits, means two things, at least. He means their fruits in terms of their actions, what flows out of them, what they do. But as we'll see in verses 21 and 23, or 21 to 23, just works is not a foolproof way to judge whether someone is a false leader, a false prophet, the wrong kind of person to be following. Jesus, when he speaks of their fruits, also means 
their character, what flows out of them as a result of being in communion with him as the vine. This is the fruits of the Spirit, right? Looking for these kind of things among those whom we would follow. Jesus is not calling here for a witch hunt that makes a chart of the fruits of the Spirit and seeks to rate leaders on a one to five scale, and then if they score high enough, they're worth following. Jesus is calling for his disciples, those who would follow him, to use wisdom. It's an exhortation to be a Berean, not just about what is taught, but about who teaches. It's a good warning for us because we can be very careful at times about what is taught. Is someone teaching the doctrine that we believe is sound? But we can be very neglectful at times of who is teaching. Is this person showing fruits of following Jesus? I think this works today in a couple ways, and I think it's worth thinking about. How does that look today? Because there's some obvious examples, right? Don't follow a leader who is claiming to follow Jesus and committing adultery, being abusive, those kind of things. But I think the danger for us is much more subtle than that. It's not usually that a leader comes on the scene and is full-blown denying the Apostles' Creed or something like that. Rather, the danger for us today is following false prophets, false leaders, false teachers who will offer counterfeit gospels. Something that looks right, looks good at first glance, maybe even has a ring of truth to it, but you dig in and you understand more of the implications and you come to realize that it is actually replacing the true gospel. I think one of the biggest dangers for us today is the counterfeit gospel of personal happiness. The counterfeit gospel of personal happiness. This view, this doctrine, this understanding views the main problem with you and I as being personal unhappiness, personal unfulfillment, being maladjusted. And then, if that's the problem, the gospel solution then is to learn to love yourself. To learn to love yourself. It takes form of someone saying, you can't really love others until you've learned to love yourself. Sounds good, but is it actually true? Is that what God calls us to do? No, he calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And then self is in the last right there. This counterfeit gospel says the problem is that you are unhappy, and the solution is to learn to love yourself. This is the gospel. And it's a gospel that has as its roots not Jesus and his words, but has as its roots The psychologicalization of self, that's probably not a word, the psychologizing, maybe, of self, has at its roots a Freudian doctrine of you are mainly composed of your psyche and how you feel about yourself. That is mainly what is true about you. It has at its roots an American culture that says you have a right to be happy, not just to pursue happiness, but to be happy. And if you are not Something is wrong. It has as its roots, new age, self-esteem culture. All of these things combine together and produce fruits that are contrary to Jesus' words. Jesus talks about anger, right, in his sermon. And he says, you must be reconciled with your brother. If your primary purpose in life is to be personally happy and to love yourself then you will not be willing to do what is sacrificially required to be reconciled with your brother. Jesus says to pluck out your eye if you are captured by lust. If your primary purpose is to love yourself and be happy, you will certainly not cut parts of yourself off, even metaphorically, right? Jesus gives admonition about divorce, and what is the primary leading factor in divorce? We no longer love each other. We're no longer happy. This gospel, this false gospel, this counterfeit gospel has tremendous, tremendously damaging fruits. 
tremendously damaging fruits. And the reality is that it's preached from many pulpits today. Why is this? Because as Paul warns Timothy, in the last days, we will gather teachers according to our own passions. And so if we are passionate about our personal happiness and about our need for fulfillment, we will gather teachers who are going to teach us that. And pretty soon you will have churches filled with Christianized pop psychology that has nothing to do with the words of Jesus and even leads to fruits that contradict his words. Jesus then will become a drug to be used to self-medicate yourself into happiness rather than a king to be obeyed. Friends, it ought not to be so. Do not follow such teachers. Who then should we follow? Who then is the right kind of person to follow? Does anyone fall into that category? I feel that as I think about this, because this is also a warning for me and for Thad and for Charlie as your elders here at Sojourners, your leaders, who we are saying you ought to follow us. We ought not to be teaching such garbage as the counterfeit gospel of personal happiness. And I pray we're not. But I'm conscious of who then do we follow? Jesus is calling his people to follow those who are following the narrow way. Those who are following the narrow way. Follow, in other words, those who are following Jesus. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? Paul can say that because he knows that his life is worth imitating because he is following Jesus. I hope that I can say that too. And I hope that Thad and Charlie can say that too. And I believe we can. With integrity. Not as people who perfectly follow the way. But as those who are seeking to follow Jesus. And seeking to lead others in following Jesus. Only Jesus is the true prophet. Who walks the way fully rightly. Only Jesus himself is the way. And so friends we ought to follow Jesus. And follow those who follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is warning about. And calling us to here. Only healthy trees, he says, bear good fruit. The problem, though, and the potential for danger, which he warns us of next, is that just because fruit looks good on first blush, it might not be actually good. It might actually be rotten fruit. This is the second danger he warns us of. It's a danger that we find in the false gospel of guilt-driven holiness. Right? There are many churches, and maybe you even grew up in some, that use guilt as a reason for obedience to motivate you to pursue holiness. And you know what? We can do a pretty good job, some of us, of doing that. And your life might look pretty good, and it might look like you have fruits that are worthy of imitation. But Jesus talks about in this next section how those fruits are actually rotten at the core. Let's look at that here. The second danger, what I'm labeling failing to abide, and you'll see why in a minute. Verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we ought to stop there and hear those words. Take heed. That should rattle your and my cages. I'm sad that that doesn't rattle my cage as much as it does. But listen to it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he say in verse 22? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not? And he will say, I never knew you. This is talking about people who think they are Christians. Which, I think I'm a Christian. So it's talking about me. It's talking about you if you think you are a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This is so important for you and me to get because it's possible to assume and to think that what Jesus is talking about when he says, enter by the narrow gate, is primarily talking about those who don't already know him. Right? It's talking about the start of the Christian life. Enter by the narrow gate. Don't take the gate that's wide and the path that is easy. It's easy to think about that being just a kind of presentation of the gospel, right? You've got to make a choice. And once you've made that choice, now we're done. But Jesus is showing us here that what he is saying applies just as much to you and I if we've been walking down the narrow path for 20 or more years than it does to the person who has just started down or the person who's still standing at the crossroads trying to decide. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The tragedy is that some think they belong to Christ, but will hear at the end of the age, away from me, I never knew you. And Jesus wants us to consider whether that's us. How could someone be so blind to not know whether they belong to Christ? How could they be so deceived to think that they do? Jesus mercifully gives us more than just this warning. He gives us the context for why. Notice what they say. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Why did they think they belonged to Jesus? Because of what they did for Jesus. They were blinded, in other words, by their works. What was wrong with their works? What was the problem? It wasn't that they lacked them. They had plenty. Jesus doesn't say, away from me, you didn't actually do those things. Notice he doesn't say, away from me, those things are actually bad. The things they describe... Did we not prophesy in your name? That's a good thing. Did we not cast out demons in your name? That's a good thing. Did we not do many mighty works in your name, what we might call miracles? That's a good thing. These are good works that look like good fruit on first glance. But there's something wrong with them. What is wrong with them? I think we see what is wrong with them in verse 23. Notice what Jesus says. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. In other words, what characterized their works? Lawlessness. All those good things that they did were lawless. Why? What's wrong with them that makes them lawless? I think again, the key is in verse 23. Jesus says to them, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. The problem, what makes their works lawless, is not that the works themselves are broken, but that the works themselves spring not from a heart that knows Jesus and that Jesus knows. They spring from something else. We see in John 15, I think, an explanation of this. We don't have to turn there. I'm I'm just going to summarize it for you. It's probably familiar to many of us, right? John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and his father is the vine dresser. And what does he say and call his disciples to do? He calls them to abide in the vine. And he says, if you abide in the vine, what will happen? You will bear fruit. He even says a little bit later in John 15 that if you abide in the vine and bear fruit, you prove that you are indeed his disciples. So the problem isn't that there's lack of good works. The problem is that those good works are not springing from abiding in Christ. They are springing from other sources. If abiding is how we produce fruit that actually is good fruit, that actually honors Christ, That leads to him saying, I knew you. What do you think happens when the fruit itself becomes the focus? When we become so absorbed with 
Casting out demons, prophesying in his name, doing many mighty works in his name. When we become so absorbed with those good works that we neglect the actual abiding. Think about it this way. Many of you, I think, are familiar with the story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And I know some of you have heard the podcast describing what happened at Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's, it's helpful. One of the things that's remarkable in that is the amount of seemingly good fruit that flowed out of his ministry. And there was a lot. But as you hear more of the story, you hear how much this fruit became a focus, how much effort and energy had to go into maintaining and building this organization. They became so leveraged at one point that they had to grow by a certain percentage every year just to pay back the last year's debts and things like that. It, was a, it became a machine that grew out of control. And I think hearing his story, I would guess, and I think I would be right, that part of what got left off was that abiding in Christ. It happens all the time when celebrity pastors fall. There's much good work, and yet there's something at the root that is not healthy. It's a danger not just for celebrity pastors or those involved in big, massive ministries that take a lot of attention. It's a danger for all of us, friends. Think about Mary and Martha. Jesus goes and visits their home. And what happens? Mary sits to listen to Jesus, to get to know him. And what does Martha do? She's so consumed with being a good hostess, which is not a bad idea if the Savior comes to your house, right? She's consumed with these good things. And what does Jesus say? He says she's distracted with much serving. She's distracted with good things that are not bad in and of themselves, but she's not abiding in Christ as she ought to. How do you get to know Jesus? Spend time with him. How do you spend time with Jesus? What are we called to do? These are the ordinary means of grace. How do you get to know Christ? You spend time with him in his word. You spend time with him in prayer. And you get to know him by spending time with his body. Right? Just ordinary things in the Christian life. That is how one of the main ways we abide in Christ is by spending time with him and getting to know him. Through prayer, through his word, and through body life. What do we neglect when we get too busy with good works? I know for me, I neglect prayer. I neglect reading of his word. My job is being around the body, so I can't neglect the body as much. But I neglect those things, right? I think that's normal for all of us in the Christian life. I don't think it's good. I'm not saying it's good. But I think it's the norm. That when we get busy with good things, we neglect the necessary things. This is why Luther could say tongue-in-cheek that he had so much to do that day that he had to spend the first three hours in prayer. Because he knew that's not really how we think. And he knew we tend to neglect abiding. What happens is we neglect these things when we are too busy. And then slowly we drift from abiding in Christ. And a life that consists of this will eventually find, A, that you do not know Jesus. And when you see him face to face, he will say, I don't know you. This is the warning for us. That if we do not abide in Christ, if we fail to abide in Christ, even as we may do many good things, he will say, I never knew you. May it, may it not be so of us. Friends, I, I, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times reading this text and thinking through it this week, I stopped and said, Jesus, may it not be true of me. It is a danger for us, regardless of the fact that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and we believe in the perseverance of the saints. It is a warning, and it ought to be heeded. Let the cry of our hearts may be, may it not be so. 
Failing to abide is essentially doing without hearing. And there's another inverse side to that. And that's hearing without doing. As we look at the last section here, we see that danger. Failing to hear and do the words of Jesus. Failing to obey, in other words. In verses 24 to 27. A very familiar imagery from this text, right? The house built on the rock and the house built on sand. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. In this contrast, Jesus captures the most tragic response to his Sermon on the Mount of all. You know what that is? It's nothing. It's a shrug of the shoulders. An oh well. Or a, oh that's nice. It's a response that happens all the time to God's word. We hear, we might even believe and agree that hey, this is a good thing. But we do not obey. We do not obey. All throughout the Bible, it is really fascinating that words for hearing imply doing what you hear. Imply obedience, right? We know this even from just, just daily life with kids. You ask your kid to do something and they say, yeah, I heard you, and they don't do it. They didn't really hear, right? Hearing includes obedience. Hearing includes doing. And Jesus is saying, if you hear and do not do, you are a fool and you will be destroyed. The ones who please the Father, the ones who do the will of the Father, as, as he talks about in verse 21, are those who do what he says in verse 24. Hear these words of mine and do them. They will be like a wise person and they will be led to life. This is the path to life. Why would anyone hear then without obeying? I think the answer is we hear without obeying. When we do that, it's because we're too busy building. Notice in this text, everybody's a builder, right? Everybody's building a house. It's not that there's no house building being done. The problem is hearing and obeying, not building a house. The houses may look similar, but when trials come, their true foundation is revealed. Their true reality is revealed. We've seen this in the last two years with COVID. Where churches are filled with people who hear and listen and maybe even agree. And yet have not been obeying the word of Christ. And so what happens when trials come and things get hard? People leave the churches in droves. The houses may look similar, but their reality is revealed in trials. The question is not whether a house is being built, but which foundation is it being built on? It's a question, ultimately, of whose kingdom is being built. Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, right? The prayer of many of us at various times is my kingdom come. This is reinforced through the country we live in, friends. We live in a country that has a label for this. It's called the American dream. Building your own kingdom centered around your own comfort for your own happiness. It is a foundation of sand and it will be destroyed when trials come. Because guess what? The American dream does not exist when there's trials and persecution and hardship. It is shattered. It is not worth building your life around. And so we are confronted with this reality that when we hear without doing, we are failing to obey what our Lord has said. We have a tendency to think 
that what Jesus calls us to is to come and accept him. I I love the way D.A. Carson puts this. He talks about the church spending so much time talking about why you ought to accept Jesus and very little time talking about why Jesus ought to accept you. And I think that's so true. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Come with little cost. That is not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is this. Hear and obey. Come and submit to a king and a kingdom who demands everything from you. And once you do, once you experience that, it leads not to a life of suffering. Uh, and it can lead to suffering. What I mean is it leads, it leads not to a life of sadness. It leads to a life filled with purpose. It leads to a life filled with peace. It leads to joy that comes in the morning, even if weeping tarries for a night. Submitting to this king in his kingdom leads to life. And that's what he's calling us to do. I want us to beware of hearing this as a new list of do's and don'ts. I talked about that last week. Don't hear his sermon. Don't hear this message as a list of do's and don'ts. But hear it as a call for a radically reoriented life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It is true that only those who obey will enter the kingdom. I want to read the way D.A. Carson puts it because I think it's really helpful for us. He says this, which I think holds these tensions well. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. We know that's true. There's nothing you can do to earn your place with God. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. And the reality is, if you hear his words and do not do them, then your house is building on sand. The problem with that, how many of us hear his words and don't do them? I would say we all do at various times. I don't want to take away the impact if you're thinking, I never do. That's certainly a problem. But even if you hear his words and obey them often, if you fail to keep one part of the law, you have still violated the whole law. What do we do? This is why Jesus starts his sermon where he does. What did he say in Matthew 5, verse 3? Right? What did he say? Let's look back at that for a second. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who recognize that when Jesus says, if you hear and obey my words, you build your house on the rock. And if you hear and do not obey, you build your house on the sand. Blessed is the one who says, you know what? I've heard and I've not obeyed. Lord, forgive me. Help me. Who pleads with Christ. Help me abide with you. Because I have left my first love. I have chosen many times and in various ways the wide, easy road. Just like it is not a binary choice at the beginning of a life that has no matter than what you do, it is also never too late to repent and turn to Christ while you still have breath. He is faithful and just, as we said in our liturgy, to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The end goal must never be try harder and do more. The end goal must always be learning to do The brokenheartedness that verse 3 talks about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's grace-powered obedience. It comes when we have deep conviction of our failures. And we have deep assurance of the gospel hope. We experience deep comfort. And we experience the grace that enables than our obedience. It's grace-powered obedience because who does Jesus say the words belong to? He says in verse 24 of chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. 
The words belong to Jesus. The ways belong to Jesus. And Jesus himself is the one who saves and who sends his spirit and who enables this kind of walking along the way. We see at the end of this chapter, his crowds astonished because he is teaching them as one who has authority. And we'll see as we get into next week, his next actions, what he does with that authority. This sets us up for the whole of the, the theme of chapter 8, 9, and 10. As Jesus uses his authority for the good of those who are broken. For the good of those who have built houses on sand and desperately need a savior to come and rescue them. Jesus uses his authority for his people to rescue them. And friends, that's the hope that drives our gospel-powered obedience. I want to close with the words of Titus 2. Hear what Paul writes to Titus about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your hard words for your stern warnings. You warn us because you love us and you want to see us on the path to life. I thank you that you do not just give warnings and you do not just give admonitions and you do not just tell us that you are going to judge, but you also provide us with hope of mercy. Because of your great love. You also bring about in yourself the grace of God that changes us. You yourself desire to present us as a pure and spotless bride. And so you work in us so that we might be a new people. That we might be zealous for good works. Not because they earn us a place with you, but because we love you and want to walk the path of life that you've called us to. So I pray that you would help us do that. Would you help us be a people who repents and who turns and who trusts and who walks forward with grace-powered obedience? We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.